Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Why Show, where it's my job to have a wide-ranging conversation with a guest that is creating positive societal impact to uncover their unconventional life paths. And I do that by delving into their passions, purpose, and philosophy of life. Today's guest is Siena Giraldi, and I just want to preface this by saying how interesting and exciting the conversation was for me, and hopefully to everyone else listening. So Sienna Giraldi graduated from Brown in 2018 and has worked as a brand marketing and UX strategist with some copywriting on the side. And although in a range of disciplines, she says that everything that she does is driven by the belief that creative communication and design can shape how we relate to ourselves, others, and the world around us. And her task is to help organizations and brands leverage human-centered insights to define their role in crafting a more equitable society and create both a social and commercial impact through a better understanding of their stakeholders. She currently works at BCG Brighthouse, a purpose consulting firm, and has also created her own nonprofit called bridge the gap so stay tuned and i hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as i did hi sienna welcome to the show thanks so much for having me how are you doing of course. I'm so glad you decided to join us today. I have a lot of questions and me and Sienna, we've, we've met a while ago and I think there's some, some really interesting conversations that we had in the past. So I'm really excited about today. So let's get started. And my first question is, so you've been very exposed in marketing, brand, um, user experience, design. So I'm curious, what sort of like made you transition from this like sort of macro areas to more of a purpose at BCG Brighthouse? What made you interested, first of all, in learning more about purpose and what have been some of the most interesting findings that you've had? Awesome. So I, I feel like I heard three questions in that. One was like, what was the transition and then two and three were, what are some of the things you've learned and what were the most interesting things? Are. So I guess, well, I'll start with is that transition. I feel like the thread, even though it's taken a lot of different jobs or manifestations, the thread that's kind of pulled me through from branding to marketing to UX to, to now working at a purpose consultancy is a fascination with two things. One is like systems behavior, and the second is personal human behavior. So one, the first part is like, how can we craft, like I, the thing that got me into user experience design was this case study that I saw on IDEO's website that was about redesigning the voting machine. And redesigning the voting machine was all about how do we get, how do we make voting more accessible on like a really tactile way or on right. a tactile level. And that I was like, oh my gosh, like all these things around us, like why I'm so fascinated by design, why I'm so fascinated by visual representation is all these things around us, the way we interact with the world, the things we see, that all shapes what we do 
and how we interact with the other people and how we see ourselves and how we feel empowered or disempowered. And so I've really been fascinated by like, okay, how do we design the systems around us? How do we design organizations to be yeah, productive for society, for planet, et cetera? Like how do we create that symbiosis on a systems level? And then I'm really fascinated on the personal behavioral perspective. And obviously these two things are linked as you create the, as you design systems, you also have an individual impact. But I'm really fascinated then also with like, okay, how do we get people to do things that are that are good? <laughs> like, it's kind of like, it sounds very manipulative right. and evil, but like I've been really, I'm really, um, that's why I wanted to get into advertising um, and branding because that's persuasive communication. And so how could you get people to, to how could you persuade in ways that were going to be productive? Um, and so through that lens, I feel like I, I was interested in branding and, and advertising for the visual representation. I was interested in UX for that systems design. And then purpose became sort of the like epicenter of all of that. Like how could we use purpose as a tool, right? It's like an alignment tool. It's a way for organizations to refer back to some organizing principle make sure they're on the right track and also understand sort of the breadth of their responsibilities, even outside just profit. So how could you see, how could we use purpose for like systems redesign or organizational redesign? Then also like there's a personal purpose, like there's a huge power in personal purpose. There's a lot of stats on like when we have more personal purpose, like our level of mortality decreases, like, like our heart, like there are physiological effects, <laughs> so, like we're less prone mm -hmm. to like, heart disease and all of this jazz. So yeah, and I can share more of that, that data. But on a personal level, like personal purpose also has like, has these huge physiological effects, huge emotional effects, and is that reference point and that tool again for human behavior and, and ideally driving human behavior towards some sort of productive social outcome, which is what I'm really focused on. So those are the two main threats that like systems design and personal and like human behavior, systems behavior and human behavior obsession. So that's how I got to purpose. Then what I found in purpose is that it's much more than just like doing good. Like there's, there's, I mean, in at Brightest, we talk a lot about purpose washing, which is kind of similar to greenwashing of Right. And I think one, sorry to jump in, but I feel like one thing that might be helpful is to maybe clarify what exactly is purpose. I feel like nowadays purpose is a word being used very often and a lot of times without its actual meaning, right? So how would you define purpose? And then feel free to, to get back to um, your, your thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what I was so excited about, why I was so excited about purpose is the framework that Bright House uses. And this has given me a lot more clarity because I think there's like, you can talk about, um, you can talk about brand, you can talk about mission, vision, purpose, like these words get kind of confused. Yeah. But I think mm -hmm. the way Bright House defines and approaches purpose, like puts into relief the power of purpose specifically compared to all these other things. So how that, what that definition is, is why we exist why an organization exists, why um, I as an individual exist. It's a North Star. Um, it is timeless. 
um, you're constantly working towards it as opposed to mission and vision, which vision is a destination along the way to your, on your purpose journey, like on your way to constantly working against that um, or working towards that North star or living that North star. Um, and then mission being sort of the strategy behind it, what you put in place as you work towards that vision as a destination and then the North star is an ongoing um, pursuit. So purpose as why we exist is how I define it or and how Bright House has defined it and how I've sort of what has been most compelling to me as a definition. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And then I think another layer under that, our approach to purpose has been this is I think this is the big probably the biggest finding for me. And when I say the biggest finding is that I will have like when my friends are in career disarray or where their career transition or they're like really adrift and they don't know what's going on. I give them this framework to work with and it's like incredibly soothing and reorienting. And the framework is um, it, it's based on an Aristotle quote um, where I'm going to butcher it, but uh, at the intersection of your strengths and the needs in the world, therein lies your vocation and vocation is what we're using as per that's what inspired proxy for purpose. So that framework of, okay, how can I break down? What are my strengths? Like, what do I have to offer here? What are my distinct strengths? Like, what do I particularly have to offer here? And then right. matching those with, okay, where are those needed? Like, what needs in the world do I have to fulfill? And then at that intersection, that's why you exist. And having a lot of clarity on those two things, because I think a lot of times, like, when I've been, when I've gone through current, like, transitions, I've been told to focus on one of those of what are your strengths? What are you, what are you going to provide? And then like, what's a good organizational match for that? But like really like broadening the aperture and thinking about, okay, how am I like contributing uniquely to this world? And like, what would the world lose <laughs> without me? Yeah. Which sounds really sort of like self-aggrandizing. Um, but but it kind of, it starts getting you into this mindset of like, oh, I have a particular role here. And there's motivation in that. There's hope in that. There's responsibility in that. Um, there's purpose in that, obviously. Um, and that's like not only like an incredibly enriching feeling, like it feels good, um, but also it's important because you're contributing to a larger system. And, and when we lose sight of our roles, that's when everything kind of falls apart. So I think, I think that answers your, hopefully that answers your second and third questions. There. Yeah, no, um, that was great. I feel like what I'm still interested in, in understanding, and you mentioned this sort of like macro and micro approach to solving these like complex problems, but at the same time, having the more like behavioral, like unique and, and smaller, like impact, right. Mm -hmm. In a way. So how does that like exactly happen at Bright House in, in your work? How do you combine those two, this macro approach, this micro approach to like the same job and the same like things that you're doing? And um, I would imagine like you're primarily working with companies, right? Mm -hmm. So does that ever feel like it's too on the micro scale and not too much in like the systems? part that you mentioned or do you feel like that is enough because like going from one company to the other 
imagining they're like really large corporations and they influence like not only themselves but also the other companies over time you can get this sort of like system change like how do you visualize the work that you're doing yeah i actually so i think it's kind of flipped i think i feel like i'm operating so much on the macro but what's Mm. challenging is the micro okay interesting i think it's like so and i say why i say that is because the companies that we're working with are hugely influential they have so much sway over our health systems, over our government, over our commercial systems. Like these are really powerful or or, or, these companies have a really large, huge sphere of influence. So I feel like we're operating on that, like constantly when we're going, engaging in a project, um, we are embarking on macro level change. What I think then is incumbent on our teams is making sure that we also, in our micro actions, and when I say micro actions, it's like how we're interacting with each other, how we're interacting with clients, how we're scoping a project, how we're managing a project, how we're like our word choices, like these micro behaviors are those also living up to the values, the vision, the ambition of why we're engaging this client? As we advise organizations on their purpose or as we advise organizations on transformational change, are we also embodying the behaviors um, that are in line with that that future vision of a world? Um, So yeah, so I think so we're kind of focused on the macro and then um, the micro is is a constant, uh, I don't want to say challenge. It's a constant, fo- it's something we have to be conscious of as we do this work and not lose sight of um, how we're showing up day to day. Yeah. One study that I actually thought was really interesting that I learned in in one of my classes was that it's actually not a study. It's like, so some McKinsey consultants, I think were like, it was like more than a thousand of them signed this sort of petition slash uh, letter asking the leadership that McKinsey should only work with these clients if the project that they were helping advise these clients would ultimately bring some sort of societal change, right? So it couldn't be just a project to like increase their profit. Mm. It couldn't be like something just like a regular project. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting because it comes from like definitely one of the largest like strategy consulting firms, the the largest one and like one that certainly will or could provide the example for a lot of others that might follow and also, you know, do that sort of change. And arguably that would, you know, bring some sort of positive societal change to the world if every project that was being done with a company that is in a way harming the world um, was focused on reducing that harm and hopefully even creating a net positive for that company, right? Yeah. So anyway, I think it's interesting the the discussion about like the, the shareholders slash stakeholder um, 
priority as well, right? And that's another thing that I've been learning a lot in class about not just prioritizing your shareholders, which has been the overwhelming opinion and, and focus on the, mm. I don't know, like last 100 years to more of a like stakeholder perspective, right? Mm. So I'm curious if you have any any thoughts on that or if you... Um, if you'd like to to jump in and and maybe like offer some some perspective on like stakeholder um, engagement or like how you think about that more of a like macro level uh, change. Yeah, I love stakeholder capitalism. <laughs> What got me to Bright House? I mean, apart from sort of this overall this long bow, the like shortest bow from my previous my job before Bright House to Bright House, I helped an agency apply for certification um, as a B Corporation. And that was a really eye-opening experience because you were getting... Let's yeah. maybe, sorry to cut no, no, you, no. but uh, let's maybe define what a, what a B Corp is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for people listening and then uh, continue. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So B Corp is a... So B Corp certification is a certification that is, a, is given to organizations um, who practice stakeholder capitalism. So capitalism or, or whose practices are not just for the benefit of shareholders. Um, and they organize it based on like, okay, what are your policies and practices towards employees what are the, and customers, um, partners, um, and environment? I think those are the four broad categories. And in each of those, there are a bunch of criteria. Like I think what I was, what was so exciting to me is that it's such a huge question and like stakeholder capitalism is such a huge question and moving away from a yeah. shareholder focused model is is massive and for this certification like what i what i why i loved it so much was that it was this framework and series of action steps and series of like thresholds like do you have this number of volunteer days available to your employees and that's the one that comes off the top of my head but Are you using yeah. these kinds of light bulbs? And like, those seem very micro. And then they were up to like, you know, going through your whole supply, your whole um, supply chain um, and unpacking, like, who are you engaging as suppliers and how are you engaging them as suppliers and what are you paying them? And is X percentage, um, you know, like what are, what are the policies of those, of those suppliers? So anyway, I love that because it gave me the sense of, oh, this is possible. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the biggest, like Patagonia is a B Corp, Ben and Jerry's are, is a B Corp. Um, but so I think, so yeah, I, I'm really excited by a stakeholder focused capitalist model. Um, and that's part of what drives me at Bright House as well is that, okay, how can we work within how organizations work right now as an, as an, at least as a short term immediate response and to leverage like the massive amount of resources that these organizations have. And I think this also comes off the back of, I previously worked in nonprofit sector and was constantly disillusioned or like kind of frustrated with the under-resourcing. And I'm hoping this isn't like some post-rationalization of now going towards like a, like a higher resourced sector, like the for-profit sector, but like that that's where there's, <laughs> there's so much influence there and there's so many resources there. So why can't we just like redirect them? Um, and that's, yeah, that's what you can hear. I'm getting animated. That's what gets me. 
<laughs> no, yeah, but one thing that came to mind when you were talking about like nonprofits specifically mm -hmm. is that I also remember learning and I thought it was fascinating that people have always trusted more like nonprofits than like government or or business, yeah. right? That has always been sort of like the institution that was the most trusted. And over the past five to 10 years, that has actually shifted and like businesses are now more trusted than nonprofits, which is crazy to think about, right? Because not always businesses have um, the goal of like improving necessarily like society or like a specific area of society. So I just thought it was a very interesting um, shift that we've been observing. But shifting gears a little bit, I, I found out that you have won a award called the Global Teen Leadership Award. <laughs> and it was actually given by Nile Rogers, a famous musician and the We Are Family Foundation. So I'm curious to know, like, why did you receive that award? Like, what was the award like about? Like, um, and how was how was that uh, experience? Um, yeah. That was like, that was 2013. So I was in high school during that time. Um, I was nominated for it and chosen for it um, because of a nonprofit I was running called Bridge the Gap, which is again <laughs> towards that, what I was just talking about, about purpose of bridging gaps of misunderstanding. And um, that was li literally linguistic misunderstanding. Like it was an ESL um, nonprofit. Um, and the background in that actually i've always like and why this is my purpose i've always loved speaking foreign languages i've always loved traveling i've loved immersing myself in other cultures ways of thinking i've been i'm fascinated by how different languages shape how we understand the world like how we understand our future and our past and like um uh like in 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 Mandarin, which is one of the languages I study, our future comes from behind us, and then our past is like moves in front of us. Um, I'm trying to visualize that our future comes behind us. Yeah, it's like I'm, okay. and I'm. I it's been ages <laughs> since I've actually spoken Mandarin, and so I needed. That's pretty counterintuitive <laughs> to me, but yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to visualize. Really, um, it's like. Yeah. Um, like it's like our future, we haven't seen it yet. It's coming from behind us and it moves and then our past. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I think that's just a fascinating way to think about how we're approaching our future versus our future is happening to us versus visualizing our future versus you can't visualize your future. Like I find that just like, it's crazy. Um, and such a different way of like, U.S. perspective on future. Um, what am I saying? <laughs> I've always really loved learning foreign languages. I um, went, worked in Taiwan for a while, not for a while, for two weeks. That's a short period of time. Teaching English to indigenous children in, in eastern Taiwan. And I remember when I got back to the U.S., the customs agent was asking me what I was doing there. He was like, and I told him, um, I was teaching English, and he was like, look, there are tons of people in the U.S. who need to learn English. And it was kind of this, like, obviously I knew that, 
but it was kind of this like it was this chilling moment of like okay what am i doing you know traveling away like there's 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 need here and um and esl lesson classes are really expensive and i tried to find a bunch of i was 15 at the time i was trying to find a bunch of esl organizations to teach at and no one would take me um because i was 15. and so i wanted to start i started my own um and just got this band of like students and teachers at my school to um to put on this and partnered with local churches and um local refugee organizations and um uh we and that was the nonprofit. So that's what I was nominated for. Um, I it was a really fascinating experience, namely of imposter syndrome. And I remember when I was nominated for it, I was like, they have the wrong bridge the gap. And then when I was chosen for it, I was like, they didn't they misread something. And then when I was in the program, I remember the woman who was leading it. And we were given this questionnaire before the um, before the summit or before the program. And I was like, who would you want to meet the most? Um, and I forget who I put down, but I put down who I wanted to meet, like which celeb, which, who in the world would you want to meet the most? And she, the woman at the um, organization, I guess was pulling each of us out into the stairwell. We were in the middle of a session. She was pulling us out into the stairwell. And she was like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm so-and-so what do you want to tell me? And it was, it was in the practice was like, we as entrepreneurs were going to be put on the spot to like, that's when I first learned how to do an elevator pitch and to, uh, you know, to communicate the goals of an organization, communication skills that are kind of failing me in this podcast. But anyway, um, <laughs> no, they're definitely not. <laughs> um, but so she pulled me out to the stairwell to do that to me. I'm so-and-so. What do you have to, to tell me? And right. I didn't really understand what was going on. And so I thought she was pulling me to the side to like have kind of like a like a one-on-one of like, I don't, I mm. think you're in the wrong place. Like I thought that's what I was about to be told. So oh. <laughs> I like just like spilled to her. I was like, before she could even say anything, I was like, I, know, I think I'm in the wrong place. I know that you guys brought me here, but I don't know if this is, if I'm at the right caliber of the other <laughs> entrepreneurs. And I was like, there are some people who are like really, some really impressive teenagers. I was like, I don't know if you have the wrong, the right skin. Anyway, <laughs> it was, I just constantly look back to that experience as a moment where I pushed against someone else saying you're doing good work and I couldn't accept it. And I know there were so many other learnings in that summit. Like we were, we were taught how to, you know, do media interviews. We were taught how to grow and scale an, an organization. Um, oh, we wow. met the Humans of New York phot- photographer who would like did profiles on us. Like it was, <laughs> it was a lot of learnings, a lot of amazing opportunities, a lot of incredible other young entrepreneurs. But I just remember throughout the whole time feeling like I, they had chosen the wrong person and. I've tried to hold that lesson with me as I've moved forward of trying to back myself up, but sometimes it works. Sometimes yeah. Don't. What did she tell you? Like when you guys had that specific conversation and you sort of spilled all the <laughs> <laughs> emotion inside you of insecurity, the unsolicited <laughs> vulnerability share. Um, what did she tell me? You know what? I want to say she like said something 
that turned it all around for me. But mm. she was kind of like, that's not what I'm talking to you about. And then we and I was like, oh, yeah, oh, of course. And then we did the thing that she came out to do. And I remember there being like, and I, but I guess the takeaway from that was like, look, she's not going to give you, like, they've given you confidence enough. They've chosen you. Right. Now yeah. you take it yeah. from here. And so it's not about mm-hmm. like, I'm almost, I'm glad that she didn't sort of like sit down and kind of like, you know, um, <laughs> indulge me on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Um, I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> um, so also going back to this, you know, your 15 year old mm-hmm. self um, before you started Bridge the Gap, mm-hmm. but after you went to Taiwan, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is, it's like, it's a big step, right? To like create an organization, create like something new mm-hmm. that requires like a lot of courage a lot of like motivation do do you feel like you've always been more entrepreneurial or was that something that was more like spontaneous at that at that specific moment like how Mm. how did you like come come about like how did you like sort of navigate that desire of like doing something but being like young and not being very sure about what sort of route to take yeah i i I have a lot of thoughts rushing to my (laughs) flooding me right now that's good (laughs) anyway i read adam grant's originals like a few years ago maybe in 2018 and one of the and that's it's a book about like what makes creative genius and and standout entrepreneurs and all that and one of the things he um warns against is like like the child prodigy i think is is the deal Mm. and i think and i was not a child prodigy by any stretch of the imagination but i was someone who liked to i like to play in the rules and i like structure and i like knowing i'm i have the next thing teed up and i have the safety of you know and bridge the gap and a few other things that i've done that i've been more entrepreneurial me just doing my little venture I know I've done those before where I didn't really believe in it. And I was like, I, I, I want to do something and I know I believe, I kind of believe in this and it's adjacent to my beliefs and I'm trying to do it. And it's more of a should, I think I should be doing this Mm. rather than like, Oh, there is a need here and I will not stop at anything. And I think they're just like two, it's like split screen mindsets. And one, like the should mindset, just like, you're not getting anywhere. It doesn't feel good. The output isn't good. The, oh my gosh, there's a need here. And like, that's why I love that purpose framework of like strengths and need in the world. When there is a need here, like nothing's getting in my way. And I think that could like, that kind of is like a human trait. I don't think that's just a Sienna trait. Um, I don't know if this is answering your question, but I think to, to wrap it in a bow, I try as much as possible to get myself out of the should rule abiding, um, like the, I'm using the trope of the child prodigy, child prodigy realm and into, I'm not doing this for any accolades. I'm doing this because if someone doesn't do it, there's going to be a really big problem. Um, and I, when I play in that space, like 
it is just a game changer. It's a, it's a different and game changer for like for myself and for my effort. And I think the output is just a lot is different. Yeah, that reminded me of I was listening to a podcast of one of my favorite um, speakers, Tim Ferriss, and he was interviewing uh, Seth Godin. And like Seth actually mentioned something like this idea of a lot of people sometimes suggest asking the question like, what would you do if you couldn't fail? And he was like, that is the worst question possible to to ask and he was like instead and that came as a surprise mm-hmm. to me you know and, and i feel like for for a lot of people um was like what would you do if you knew you would fail and the difference between those two questions is that when you ask this, the the second question what happens is that most people would not do that would not start like whatever they're thinking and, and considering starting whereas the first one the first question would make a lot of people do that, whatever they're thinking about doing, whatever problem they're trying to solve, right? So what happens is that when you do and you solve and you keep doing this, mm-hmm. the, the answer to the second question, there's going to be much less people working on that problem so that will actually maximize your chances of being successful in whatever solution you have. So I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting, like that perspective, you know, of, you know, being kind of like, similar questions, but with very different outcomes, mm-hmm. right? But anyway, <laughs> what would you say to people that maybe haven't really figured out what they want to do either in their careers or there might be people that are wanting to do some change now that have some sort of um, ambition towards achieving something, but they don't know what to like do or what to like where to get started like would yeah. would you just recommend the, the the purpose um framework or do you have other like hacks or or um yeah ways that you approach you know or that you have in the past like approach this um this question or this issue yeah that's it's so funny because i feel like this like i'm you know these are um questions my friends are asking all the time, questions I'm asking myself all the time. So I do not want to position myself as an expert, but I think what's helped me the most is yes, that purpose framework. And two is like, and this sounds so so woo-woo, but following your energy. And I think this goes back a little bit to what I was just talking about of like, okay, can I, like, I know there was this other project I did in college that where I had the mindset of like, I, of, I must get this done. And it was in a really stressful time. Everything was like, it was like finals and a bunch of like there were exhibits going on. I was, I was painting a lot in college. Anyway, it was a really stressful time. And there was like really no time for me to, to be doing this project. And there's no accolades for this project. And I think I'm just repeating what I was saying before, but like I just had such a huge energetic pull towards the work that I was doing with this project. And I use that as a reference point now to say, okay, I feel pretty adrift here. Or like I do not feel the fire 
that I felt when I was in that, doing that project? Or like, what are these like, what are smaller things I can start doing that I feel that like, ooh, I've got to be doing this. Or I've got like, that's mm-hmm. where my energy spikes. And I don't think it has to be necessarily professional. Like, like I just, I think doing like a stock of your own energetic shifts. <laughs> I know that sounds so broad, but like do a stock of the things you have done and when you have felt best. And when you also have done things without anyone asking you to do them. And they could be so irrelevant to a resume. And I think tracing that and then getting to the heart of that, of like, okay, why did you feel so good? What was like, what was the mindset it put you in? What were the skills you were flexing? What were the needs you were answering? All of those, if you can start untangling that, then I think you start building up a recipe of like, okay, how can I apply my skills in, in a professional sense? That's how I've approached like career transitions in the past. It's also how I've approached like, when I don't feel like I'm applying myself in ways that I want to apply myself. So that's my thinking. <laughs> and on on a similar note, I feel like sometimes the hardest thing is is to actually, you might be doing the thing that you believe bring you the most energy and you're like, you're passionate about. But there are days that you might wake up and you're like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't have the motivation anymore. I feel like those might be the hardest moments and like those might be like the, even you might, even though you might be getting a lot of energy from doing that mm-hmm. on a large scale, there might be days when you're like, I don't have this motivation. I don't have this um, interest mm-hmm. right now. Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah. I, that's funny because I actually feel like the past few months I've had a bit of that. Um, and I think there's like, there's like a threshold there, right? There's like daily lack of motivation. And then it's like, okay, am I attending to my needs? Like, is this like, do I need to go for a run? Do I need to be outside? Do I need to be giving myself joy? Um, in, in ways that are relevant to what I'm doing that, that I'm focused, that is giving me motivation or not giving me motivation, whether that's a job or a project or a pursuit or whatever. Um, like, is it just that I need to like take care of myself in a different way and just wait this out? Or like, is this data on a bigger change? Um, and I, like, I feel, feel like I've gone through those seasons in my life of, you know, moving away from the States and then deciding, no, I need to come back to the States. And it are, it all started with sort of this like gut, ugh, something's off. And then, okay, I'll try the micro actions. I've got to change this, got to change this. Okay. Something's still off. Okay. I'm going to keep going. And then you get to a point where you're trying to change the environments around you or like you know, take care of yourself and, and attend to the things that you think might be off. And it's still not going away. And you're like, okay, I've got to, let's get some clarity on this. And then I think when you can really, like, you can create that clarity and engage with that feeling and not be scared of what it might be telling you. Cause I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, cause big change is exhausting and hard. And like, where do you start and where are you going? And like, what are you leaving behind? It's all, it's total, it's total mess, <laughs> but it's also one of the yeah. most beautiful <laughs> moments. And I think when I've listened to those 
gut feelings that have that I was too scared to acknowledge because it might have meant something big. When I've listened to that and taken action on that, um, that's when my life has felt its most fulfilling and, and I've felt the most sense of flourishing. <laughs> yeah, Sienna, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to record this episode. So thank you again. Of and it's a it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and listening to my ramblings <laughs> about <laughs> emotions and guts and purpose. <laughs> I feel like all of that has a lot of value. So I again very appreciative of you taking the time. Thank you again. These are really amazing questions. So I really appreciate it. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening until the end. If you have any friends that you believe would benefit from listening to these conversations, I would really appreciate if you can give it a share. And we also have a new Instagram account, so go follow us at The Y Show. Thank you for listening and see you next time.